Hello. Welcome to the Forge and Anvil podcast, where we hammer out uncomfortable conversations to sharpen ourselves for the race set before us. My name is Connor. I'm host of this podcast. And today, this is our first episode of the new year. So thank you all for tuning in. Um, I actually did have the privilege of recording an episode over the holidays, um, aside from our Christmas special, which I recommend checking out um, if you're feeling in the mood to reminisce on Christmas already. Um, But uh, the episode I was recording, aside from the Christmas episode, I actually ended up being as sick as a dog. And um, long story short, I ended up puking off screen. So that was lovely. So I'm still in the midst of editing that and seeing if I can save what I can so you all get to enjoy it without the the uh, grossness of my sickness so but uh, either way be on the lookout for that but today we're going to talk about uh, other sicknesses um, such as the lying deceitful enemy that lives among us and we're going to talk about some of his tactics but joining me to do that is regular guest of the show Michael Aper. Howdy friends. Yeah, my name is Mike Laper. I'm a student of scripture, and I desperately want to follow God's word rightly, understand it well, and guide others to do the same. Awesome. Yeah, so we're going to dive straight in. So I'm going to read a couple verses out of Genesis 3. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch of it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the verse, of course, goes on and um, ultimately we see Adam and Eve eventually do, of course, partake of the fruit and they do realize that they are naked and they then go to uh, get fig leaves and cover themselves of their nakedness and they go on to hide from the Lord when he was walking in the garden. So I wanted to talk about Genesis 3 today uh, with Michael and have a little bit more laid back discussion for this episode, Um, talking about an important subject. Just in my observance of this text throughout, throughout my morning devotions that I've been doing in the new year, what immediately struck me when I was rereading Genesis 3 is that the enemy does not always give us blatant lies. We know that he's a liar. We know the scriptures say that he is the father of lies. But at the same time, something that happens in Genesis 3 that I think is more impressive and worrisome is that the enemy does not always use these obvious lies. Sometimes he tells something much more dangerous, which is a half-truth. So, for example, when he says, you will not surely die, well, both Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and ultimately, they did not die, at least probably not in the way that they were thinking. They did not drop dead right then and there. And then, of course, they did recognize their nakedness. And so, as a result, you can tell that their innocence was clearly lost, meaning they probably began in that moment to have a concept of good and evil and were aware of their vulnerable state 
So that being said, we know that they did in fact die because when they ate of the fruit, they brought death into the world and they brought sin into the world and they did themselves become mortal. And we see that as a result of their actions, um, the Lord, when he calls upon them and he finds them in the garden hiding from him, he does eventually kick them out of the garden after first laying out the consequences of their actions. But then what happens, which is interesting, is that he clothes them. And when he clothes them, he has to kill an animal to make clothes out of the animal's skins. So even though Adam and Eve have not yet died themselves, we already see that they have become mortal and they have brought about death through their actions of eating from the forbidden tree. But I wanted to talk today about the theme of those half-truths because the serpent seemed to be telling the truth in a sense when he was tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. But it was only a half-truth. And I think that those half those half-truths are much harder to spot and they are much more dangerous. And I think that there are a lot of different half-truths going on right now in our culture. And so today I just wanted to dialogue about some of those those half-truths with Michael here. And of course, you're welcome to comment below and bring up any other half-truths that you see um, going on in our culture today. And I'd love to, you know, potentially dialogue further on this if that's something that you guys are interested in. But yeah, I, I, so I guess I'll go ahead and just open up um, to you, Michael, uh, just from there, um, your thoughts about how the enemy uses half-truths oftentimes instead of just blatant lies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, this chapter, these verses of, of Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5, give a point-by-point -point description of how this takes place. In fact, uh, the serpent utilizes three distinct methods of half-truths or, or perceived, I would say, implied truths. So bear with me for a second and feel free to interject mm -hmm. while I go through these three truths. So first, in verse 3, or sorry, verse 1 of chapter 3, the first thing that the serpent says is, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you know what's unique about that? No. No, God never said that. And and Eve clarifies, we can eat of the trees in the garden, but he said don't eat from this one. Because hmm. if we eat from this one, then we'll surely die. So the first implied truth is mistaken intent. Hmm. And that first implied truth or half truth is guised as inquiring about an altered version of clarity to receive clarity to say did he actually say what this is mm. and if i if i may i'd like to use one huge blaring example that i see christians struggling with in our culture mm. and that is homosexuality mm. is a huge huge thing that we have seen a lot of fundamentalist groups come harshly against and we've seen a lot of more progressive christians 
completely buckle under and compromise their values on. So here, I, I want to use homosexuality as the example for these half-truths half and implied truths that the enemy would have us believe. So before you do that, I think it's important to stop for a moment and recognize what you were saying with the, what? how did you word it? Mistaken intent, something mm -hmm. of that effect. Yeah, that's exactly it. Mistaken intent and I altered clarity as well. Altered clarity. I think that's important because one of the terms that we hear thrown around a lot in today's culture is deconstruction. And I just find it interesting because when you see in the garden in Genesis 3, the very first thing that the serpent begins to do is deconstruct. He doesn't immediately come right out and come up against God. He just asks a question that begins to throw a seed of doubt into, into Eve's mind about what exactly the Lord had commanded them what what the boundaries were the lord set up for them and i just think that's important to to really emphasize that deconstruction um that deconstruction tactic that the enemy begins to use yeah no it's yeah. really it's really a good point and i think the example of this this mistaken intent or altered clarity is when either christians because there are christians who have said this and because of those Christians, now our culture says God hates gays. Therefore, Christians hate gays. Mm. This is a this is a mistaken intent, and it is an altered clarity on what God has said about homosexuality. So mm. when we have Christians who say God hates queers and and riot and picket and scream at at uh, pride festivals and things like that, I believe. That's a horribly mistaken intent, and that is the work of the enemy. And in the same way, because of those Christians, we have more progressive, liberal-leaning individuals who chagrin the church and say, I can't be a part of the church if I have homosexual tendencies because God hates gays, because they believe that lie. So then the, the response of a Christian as the, the perspective of Eve is to say, well, God hates the sinner, not the sin. There's, pardon me, God hates the sin, not the sinner. Mm. And true enough, but that's not the full picture either. Well, let's continue to the, the second point. The second point is in verse four of chapter three, where the serpent then says to the woman, you'll not surely die after she just said that God said that they would die. So in this implied truth or half truth, this implied truth is that God's instruction doesn't mean exactly that. It's a, it's identifying a technicality where the enemy saying, well, yeah, but is that really, is that really what it means? Like mm. that's not exactly it. And this is a, an extension from that mistaken intent that we already identified. So in the example of homosexuality, we have the, the people that say, God hates gays. No. When was that ever the message of the Lord? No, let's clarify God's message. So let's say, okay, uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Let's look at that where it says, uh, Paul's writing to the Corinthians and says, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So that's the Christian's response, right? And this is where the enemy and the, the deceiver is going to take that instruction and and say that on a technicality, no, you know, Corinthians is really specific to the people of that culture in Corinth because of the, the worship of specific deities in the Roman pantheon. So Paul didn't really mean that for now. It's not an ethical principle. It's a situational cause. Mm. And that's the way that the enemy is going to take that technicality, that specificity, and manipulate it to alter the truth of what has been said. Just Mm. like the serpent says to Eve, you're not going to die. Like That's what he says, but that's not what he means. So how are we going to interpret that in, in this light? And that that feeds directly into the third main point of the serpent's work in deception for these half truths. And the third half truth is then in in verse five, where the serpent says, for God knows for is an important conjunction because it's saying you'll not surely die. And this is why, because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil what he does here and what what the half truths and the lies the deception takes place here the the intended truth or the implied truth of the enemy is to say well there's additional information and insight that you're missing so you can't Mm. possibly understand god's thoughts about these things because you're not taking in the full picture Because if you knew, you'll actually learn more and you'll be like God if you eat from the fruit. So no, you're not going to die. In fact, you're going to be better off for it. So how do we apply this to the homosexuality debate within Christendom? The, The very same principality is at place where people say, God made people gay. I was born gay. And... God is always for love. Love comes first. So God must accept homosexuality because love is love. And God is love. And if we're going to read the Bible and say God is loving, then he clearly cannot condemn something that he created in a specific way. Mm. And Mm. it builds this argument and it plants these seeds of doubt and misunderstanding in the Christian's perspective. So that now we have a full generation of Christians who are being raised to overlook the sin of our culture. And I want to clarify, I want to clarify against these implied truths. So when the implied truth of mistaken intent says God hates gays, absolutely not. God has died for gays. And if he had been alive at the time when homosexuality were so prevalent a problem within the culture of the church, 
just as tax collecting was, just mm. as sinfulness among the Jews was, I believe that Christ would have dined with homosexuals, that he would have sought them out with his love. And yeah. yet the message that he has for them is not changed. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And after he relieves them of their sinful ways, he says, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. This mm. is the message of Christ to the gays that he loves. But the second implied truth, that God's instruction doesn't mean exactly that, saying that the culture of Corinthians chapter 6 and Romans chapter 1, that also specifies um, the, the unnatural sin of exchanging what is right for what is wrong in men going after other men, these cultural concepts that are saying that Paul's letters to these churches are specific for a time and a place, that does not hold up. And even if you want to look at, at Corinthians 6, 9, are we to say the same about the other things listed? Paul hmm. says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So if we're going to say that only one of those things is culturally implicit and not morally binding, then how do we differentiate amongst those things? Mm. And further, I want to be very clear about the, the verbiage used in the English Standard Version as well that says um, <clears throat> men who practice homosexuality. A lot of people, I've heard it said before that like, homosexuality wasn't in the Bible until 1940, whatever, when the edition mm. changed and all this bullcrap. No, just because you don't read Greek doesn't mean that word <laughs> isn't in there. Like, right. the word is very explicit. It, it's lusting after men, lusting after something that is not of its own. Like, it's, it's very much in the, the wording that can be traced to the earliest renditions of the, the manuscripts in Corinthians. So it's not as if that's added in because of cultural context in our current society by any means. Mm. It was relevant then, and it is relevant now because what Paul is speaking of is a morally binding principality. Mm. Mm. And then the final truth here, or implied truth, is that there's additional insight that you don't understand. Mm. I was born gay. Why would God create me this way and then punish me for the way he created me? And God must always be for love because God is love. Mm. I would challenge yeah. that to say, we don't often understand what loving truly is. Because God can be defined not just in love, but in righteousness. Mm. And yeah. in righteousness is wrath. And wrath is justice. The justice of God is the reason that he died for you. Specifically, because whether you're gay or straight or struggle with homosexuality, whether you struggle with pornography as a straight man, that sin has separated you from the love of Christ. Which is why Paul writes to the Romans after explaining Christ's salvation, that Christ would die for us. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons or anything can separate us from the love of Christ. 
because of our salvation through his atonement. So when Jesus dies, he dies for the homosexual. He dies for the transgender. He dies for the the cis male. He <laughs> dies for the, the straight white guy, middle-aged, working a nine-to-five blue-collar job. You know, that's Christ has died for all that all might come and be saved and might repent and be saved. Right. But Christ's message is repentance. It's not acceptance. Hmm. That's an important distinction that I think these, these lies and these deceptions would deviate. from. Yeah. Can you go back over that final, that final point? Can you give me that your, your summary line that you had there? Yeah. There's additional insight that you're missing and you can't possibly understand what God has thought. Additional insight. Yes, that's what I wanted to have you repeat. Are you familiar with, I believe it's pronounced the Dunning-Kruger effect? No, no, tell me. And, you know, feel free in the comments if I, you know, got the got the terminology wrong there. But it's, it's, a, it's a theory that essentially says that, that when you first start to get into something, you will become incredibly... Um, there's a certain arrogance that comes about when you first get into something. Let's say you get into peach farming and you, you know, you're, you're a brand new peach farmer and you've read a few books on peach farming. So you're super excited about it and you get almost like adamant that, you know, like the proper way of peach farming. Um, And then the Dunning-Kruger effect is the idea that that's how you start off. And then maybe you read enough or maybe you encounter a real peach farmer. Let's say you encounter a guy, and and I'm I'm using this example because I can almost relate to this, um, being you know getting into homesteading. You might meet someone who grew up peach farming, you know, from the the time they were a little boy. Now they're in their seventies and they're still running and operating their own peach farm, and they have decades of knowledge. And you suddenly are humbled, and you realize, wow, I know nothing about peach farming. And so you go from being super confident in your knowledge to being really humble and and a lack of confidence in your knowledge. Then of course, if you push past that, you eventually become what we would consider to be a professional in your craft. Um, Once you eventually push past that moment of not knowing anything. And so you really, really dig deeper and actually truly learn to a point where you can actually be comparable to someone who's a master in their craft. I think that's just an interesting thing because I think that that happens a lot of times with theology I'm learning that for myself. Um, you know, I would say in a way I'm in the midst of that Dunning-Kruger effect um, where I think I think before I had properly scrutinized the Bible for myself, I was to some degree borrowing knowledge that I grew up with that I was told, but it wasn't necessarily enough knowledge to sufficiently answer the doubts that I had in my faith. Um, whereas I, I would say recently, I wouldn't say I'm, I've deconstructed. I would, I would say I've scrutinized my faith in a healthy way. And I have sought answers for things that I didn't have a good answer for. And it's only made me much wiser, but I have, I feel like I'm still in that, that valley of, of, um, you know, less confident in some areas, but beginning to get out of that valley as I truly search and make it my own. Um, you know, and and do the the work myself to be aware of uh, proper doctrine and understanding the text of of the Bible. Um, but now, the reason why I brought that up is is 
that additional insight that we're not aware of, I think sometimes, sometimes that's when people do deconstruct and walk away from their faith altogether is they start in that, um, that confident area of, you know, maybe they went to a youth camp in, in high school and there was, you know, the, the, the lights were, were down low and the worship band was on target that night. And, uh, you know, they surrendered their, their faith and they, they walked down the aisle just as I am and, um, you know, surrendered their life to Jesus. And then, and then something comes along that radically challenges their worldview. And if you don't do the work to kind of push through that and to, to actually do your own work, uh, your own research and understanding, you know, apologetics and doctrine and things of that nature. I think that's oftentimes where people start to deconstruct is in that, that bottom slope. And what you said there, how the enemy says, you know, it implies that there's some additional knowledge that you really just don't understand. It's, it's almost like, he tries to make something that's not super big, super big so that you feel overwhelmed by it and you start to doubt yourself and you doubt your own ability. But his goal is to not let you work past that to where you can actually become confident in your faith later on. His goal is to keep you there. Not only doubting your own ability, but doubting the instructions that God has already given explicitly. Right, right. Exactly. And and I think that's super important because I think that that is a lot of where this deconstruction movement comes along. I mean, we have people that have deconstructed. I mean, I, I can't remember his name. I think it's Max something or other from DC Talk. <laughs> you know, they wrote the song Jesus Freak. I don't really care if they label me a Jesus Freak. You know, that was the lyrics. And yet he deconstructed you know, like a, about two years ago now, and, you know, basically said, I don't know if I'm an evangelical. I don't really know what I am anymore. I just know. And it's usually something cultural, like what you pointed out. Usually it's something to do with like homosexuality. Like, well, how could a good God be against someone who struggles with homosexuality? And, and that's where, you know, it, to some degree it's on him for not doing the work of actually understanding the further implications of why is that not okay? And in addition to why is that not okay, what you said, which is, you know, we have a cultural emphasis on homosexuality, but, uh, you know, it's no worse than gluttony. It's no worse than greed. It's no worse than lying in regards to it's all immoral and short of the kingdom of God. So I just think that that's an interesting you know, I'm slightly, I'm slightly rambling at this point, but I think that's just an interesting point that, that the deconstruction happens when, when seeds of doubt are sown, but specifically when you don't then take time to address those doubts and to figure it out for yourself. And by figure it out for yourself, I mean, truly actually take time to scrutinize the word and to do so open-mindedly and, and and fairly because i think in a market of free ideas i think the bible holds up but it will not hold up if you don't actually give it the time you don't actually put the work into reading the text for yourself into understanding church history understanding apologetics and and the the science behind creation you know and and so many things that honestly i do think hold up when scrutinized so that's just that's just my rant on that. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, we we I spoke a lot about homosexuality as a specific topic, but this is not 
this is not a topic about homosexuality. It's a topic about half-truths and right. deception. And how often do people in the church in the midst of their deconstruction or people outside of the church defending their, their moral relativism, are they willing to take scriptures and scrutinize them and say, it doesn't mean that just like mm. the enemy does or say, that's not the full picture because there's so much more information that the Bible doesn't talk about. How often do we hear that? Because homosexuality is an easy one to identify because there are scriptures that explicitly command us about these topics. Mm. But when it comes to global warming, how do we educate ourselves on these seemingly moral issues when we don't have explicit commandment from God? And so yeah. often what happens is people are strong-armed into believing one perspective or another by the basis of they question their Christianity, they look inward and say, okay, what does the Bible say about this? Oh, it doesn't say anything explicitly. And if I find something that I think might be related, then someone else might come and say, that's not what it's about. You don't mm -hmm. understand the whole picture. We need to look at this from a global perspective and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm not defending one side or another in this particular example, just to say that I think that the, the guise of using um, doubt, using doubt and to say that there's more to the story than you know, can be used in a variety of different ways to really break down what people have believed is true for themselves because what's mm. true is changing all the time. Truth is relative in our culture now, although certainly we would fight against that because we know right. absolute truth. But this is a way that moral relativism is able to take hold, is that in areas that perhaps the Christian worldview doesn't have an explicit stance, then there can be scrutiny and there can be swaying from one way to another. And even if a, a scripture can be applied in a ideological sense, it's under the scrutiny because it's not meant for that particular application. And sometimes that's a relevant, a relevant counter argument. Yeah. Cause I've, I've heard many times, even we spoke on a uh, podcast months ago about um, the campaign, the, the quote scripture to promote abortion. Right. Well, by all means, for God's sake, that is not what loving your neighbor is, mm. is murdering children is not loving your neighbor and neither is getting vaccinated. That mm. was a, a huge scripture that was strong armed into that conversation. Right. And how do we discern what is being accurate what is being truthful in the absolute nature of scripture's authority and god's wisdom and discernment that we can experience through the holy spirit when it comes to vaccinations i mean really that's a tough one because i don't think scripture gives us a lot of direct medical advice concerning right. our current cultural situation and right yet there are principalities of autonomy and of serving God with our bodies. And I don't know, it's an interesting conversation. And oftentimes when we come into the political realm, as a lot of these things dwell, we deviate from our knowledge of scripture 
because mm. it seems to be no longer valid because the enemy has convinced us that we're not seeing the full picture. Right. And a lot of that is the enemy's also convinced the American church specifically that we're not supposed to take scripture into the political field. Yeah. And, you know, for those who have followed this podcast for a long time, you'll, they'll know that that is definitely the heart that this podcast started with. And this podcast is, is constantly developing, you know, we're still a new show. We've been doing this for maybe about six months at this point. I don't even know if it's been quite that long. Um, you know, and, and I can say that the Lord has been directing me when I think about topics that I want to talk about. And, um, you know, politics has been one that I would say it's been a, a multi-year quest to figure out its proper role and how to talk politics. And I'm learning more and more. And I feel like recently I've had some breakthroughs that I, I'll have to share another time. But, you know, that being said, like those half-truths, are really convenient in the in the political square in the in the public square when it goes one-sided which is anything anti-christian which of course is just how you know it's the sign of the enemy um because for example another half truth that i think has been thrown around a lot um in the public square is the idea that uh, jesus was a socialist for example um now, I think that that's an important half-truth to address, not because we we want to you know shame anyone who might think that way. I think it's, again, it's a half-truth. There's a lot of it there that sounds really good. The idea of making sure that everyone has, has proper resources and that, you know, there's not such major discrepancies between the, you know, the 1% and the, the 99%, you know, th those sound great. But when you think about specifically was Jesus a socialism, you have to think about what socialism is. And it is a, a wealth redistribution method of running an economy. And we have several scriptures that point to the fact that that were came directly from Jesus's mouth that refute the idea of wealth redistribution, especially by compulsion through the government. Um, one of the biggest examples that I immediately think of is the parable of the talents. You know, Christ gave, uh, Christ gave this parable, um, that describes a master giving, uh, giving talents to his three servants. And of course he gives, he gives multiple talents to one servant. He gives one talent to another servant. Um, you know, there's three servants. One was, I think, what was, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, was it five, three, and one, something like that, um, ratio wise of the talents. Um, regardless uh, regardless of what it was though um you know ultimately the master gives a different amount of talents to his his different servants and i think that's an that's an interesting point to think about because ultimately what ends up happening is the is the the servant who has one talent is so scared that his master is going to is going to be upset at him if he loses that talent that he ultimately ends up burying his talent and does nothing with it and he's ultimately shamed for not not uh, using his talent to invest and make more like all the other servants do and that's an important distinction because ultimately ultimately christ did not say in his parable that 
the master then looked the one who had the servant who had 10 talents and the servant who had one talent and said, Oh, you know, that's just so unfortunate. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and, and give, you know, five of your talents to this one servant. So you can each end up with roughly the same amount of, of talents. Like that's not what he does. He actually condemns the, the servant who did not invest his talent. And ultimately we see that that's that's an example where where Jesus being a socialist just would not work, and you know, I want to I want to just make sure I reiterate because I think I'm I, I'm slightly flying by the seat of my pants here with this specific analogy, and I, I just want to make sure that I emphasize one two five one two five one talent there to we one, go two to the next and five to the other, and then in the end it's one four ten so there we go. And ultimately, I was just going to say that uh, the idea of socialism being that we share in each other's, you know, burdens and and we we make sure that, you know, um, we set up systems to be as fair as possible. Well, that that's fine. That aspect of it is fine. But ultimately, I think that that's the church's responsibility. It, that should be a voluntary thing. When we see the early church in Acts, you know, when it says that they they gave um, you know, they, they shared one another's burdens and no one was lacking. Well, that was a voluntary, um, that was a voluntary act by the church to share in one another's burdens and make sure that those who had nothing were taken care of by those who had plenty. And that is a, a free will argument. And I, I believe that socialism in terms of specifically economics, a, an economic system of socialism or communism or anything to that extent, I don't think that's biblical because that is forcing redistribution you know uh, through government mandate but that's kind of a bit of a a, a uh, rant there but i don't know can what I your thoughts are on that yeah can i share something to that end um recently i had the privilege of of being close to dr nt wright a very prolific writer and uh preacher from england he's the the I don't know, he's got all these titles. He's a bishop of whatever, and I forget it all at the moment. But he's a one of the, probably the most influential theological mind of our generation. Mm. And while he was here in the United States, he had a number of different question and answer segments after giving a lecture series. And at one point, someone came up to the mic and asked him, if he was a new earth or an old earth creationist. Mm. Whether that question even means anything to you is not really the point. N.T. Wright, Tom laughed and he said, you might as well ask me if I'm voting Democratic or Republican. Mm. And what he meant by that, and he continued to say, I don't vote in that debate. His purpose behind saying that was that he's He's English. He's British. He's from <laughs> the United Kingdom. He's not voting Democratic or Republican because that's absurd. It, it doesn't right. have anything to do with the United States dichotomy that exists, uh, this, this bipartisan system that we have. Similarly, he's saying young earth and old earth creationism is a purely American issue that does not cause any quandary for any biblical interpreter throughout the world or throughout history so why is it a problem for you now i'm not even going to justify that with an answer is basically what he's saying and i feel like when 
when we try to put Jesus in this capitalist or socialist camp, I feel like Jesus has the same answer where he's like, I'm not in either of your camps. Mm. This is absurd. Don't you understand the kingdom? Did you not listen to my parables, my teachings of the kingdom of heaven throughout the entirety of the gospels, at least, if not the entirety of all of scripture? Jesus is explicitly explaining the economics of the kingdom, such as the parable of the talents, where he says, so will it be in the end to much to those who much is given much will be given to mm. and and to those who are sloth and useless they have the wrath of their master he's much more concerned with that than he is economic uh, structures of business and of distribution of wealth a lot of jesus parables have to do with wealth but none of mm. them have anything to do with who is in power over the wealth. Right. In all of them, it is assumed that the master, the father, God, is in charge of all wealth. Right. He's a distributor of blessing. So the, the monetization of, of economic systems is irrelevant to the kingdom of God, right. as it should be in some part to Christians in the interpretation of the Gospels. Right. Now, when it comes to our actual livelihood, we can make we can infer ethical choice and moral responsibility based on the principalities of individual economic systems mm -hmm. and many people believe that many good christian people believe that capitalism promotes evil because it does and for that reason they would espouse themselves to socialism but there are also many christians who understand the evil potential of centralized economic growth and control that right that socialism would promote and for that reason we would espouse ourselves more closely to the tenets of capitalism right but in the end jesus doesn't vote like that's that's not his debate right and we should certainly be more concerned in the concerns of christ than the concerns of our ballot right Right. Not to say that the ballot is not important, but because it is, it's very crucial. It, it is you know, important. yeah, I would say it is. It is one of the utmost important things after the gospel, you know. But uh, but that's of course every gospel issue aside. I think anything that is that is uh, directly associated with the gospel is more important. But obviously, I think that we need righteous leaders in office, and that's why politics is incredibly important for for you know the believers as well and I, I think i think to your point someone's probably going to listen to this and think that we are um maybe speaking out of turn here um you know and and someone's going to say well well jesus was definitely would definitely be a capitalist you know because it, historically capitalism has caused you know way fewer deaths than than socialism communism marxist ideology and you know I, so i want to make sure that that we clarify and say that I, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, Michael, Michael, but I believe what we are trying to get at here is the idea that Christ is going to judge all countries and leaders and individuals by, by God's standards. So that means that Christ would condemn socialism, 
and he would condemn capitalism whenever socialism or capitalism deviates from his standards which is often <laughs> because his standards are holy and perfect and we cannot attain them that's the whole point of why we need christ's sacrifice um so that being said i think that we live in a society now increasingly and most people listening to this will probably agree that we increasingly live in a society that i would say is a more of a corporatist state we're not necessarily a free market anymore we are becoming less of that we are becoming what many people would call um crony capitalists you know where you know politicians can be bought and um you know there are pseudo monopolies that are able to exist because if they lobby the right people they can exist even though monopolies are not supposed to exist in our system and things like that so i guess all i'm saying is that um for me personally i believe that capitalism is definitely the best system of economics but there is no perfect system of economics and Christ is going to condemn any system of economics the moment that it deviates from his righteousness. Would that be a fair take, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fairly subjective conversation. And he, hear yeah. me out when I say, I'm not disagreeing with you, Connor, in your conclusion. But I want to be careful, just like we began this conversation talking about the implied truths it's really easy when it comes to a conversation about Christ in light of our economic systems to fall into the same temptations that the tempter used against Eve to say, there's additional insight that you're missing. So you can't possibly understand the mind of God. And that is to say, Jesus wasn't exposed to capitalism. So we have to assume his perspective on it, right? Jesus wasn't exposed to direct governmental socialism. So we have to assume his perspective on it. What I would say to that is that it is obvious and explicit that Jesus's interaction in the economic state of Rome was very nonconformist. Hmm. And, and when prompted by the, the zealous leaders of the Jews who don't want to be subjugated to Rome, they say, should we pay the temple tax? And Jesus says, let me see a denarii. Let me see a coin. On who, whose image is on this coin? They say, it's Caesar's. And give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give mm -hmm. to God what is God's. And whose image is on us? Certainly the image of God himself. Mm -hmm. So I, I think... When it comes to economics, Jesus, in a way, transcends that. And he, even in his life and in his own um, cultural circumstance during the first century, was a nonconformist to economic standards. And we could even continue that to, to look into the, the young church and the, the early church, rather, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when it comes to an economic debate, my personal conviction is that much like many of our cultural debates, I will not be defined by a position in this debate. I will be defined by the righteousness of God. And in the midst of that righteousness, 
pray to God for discernment and mm. ask for wisdom so that if I should be so bold as to vote in a ballot, then that would be a reflection of God's mercy in my life. Yeah. Not of my conviction on my own ideologies. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think we're, we're ultimately saying the same thing. Um, maybe yeah. just saying it in different ways. Um, Which is important. It's good yeah. to have different ways to analyze these things so that we can be communicating clearly. Absolutely. Cause I think your, your point specifically about the fact that Jesus was not exposed to socialism, or at least not in the traditional you know, sense of what we, we think of socialism, nor was he um, exposed to capitalism. You know, he, it, that was before either of those economic philosophies were fully flushed out. And that's, that's a crucial take. So ultimately that's where, you know, what, what I was getting at is, you know, we, we ultimately look to Christ's righteousness for our example. So if whatever system is falling in or out of that, we have to do our best to have prudence and discernment to understand when to speak out against something and how to speak out against something. And, you know, we should not necessarily, like you said, you know, use Jesus, what we think Jesus would have been, whether he be a capitalist or a socialist to promote our argument because he was neither and he will be neither because he is the son of God and he is the prince of peace and he is seated on his throne in the heavenly realm. So that's, that's his kingdom. You know, he, the government is on his shoulders. So (laughs) if you want to scrutinize Jesus economics, then know that he lived on the charity of others and promoted the hospitality and charity of others as well. And Mm -hmm. commanded his followers to give up their own possessions for the sake of the widow, for the fatherless, for the poor. So if you want to take a, a book out of Jesus economics, then certainty, certainly that is the direction that we should go, not towards either socialism or capitalism or communism or whatever <laughs> version that we'd like to call that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, we could we could go on about these half truths for a long, long time. Cause you know, there's several that I, I had written down that we didn't get to, but we'll have to save that for another time because I think that that will, will end up going too long if we keep going on that. But, um, yeah, but either way, I think that this is an important conversation and, and feel free again in the comments to, to point out, you know, some other half truths that you'd maybe like us to discuss in a future episode. We would definitely tackle that if there's enough demand for, you know, specific topics um, that you'd like us to flush out. And, um, you know, we, we are hoping to potentially do some of this live in the near future too. So we'll keep you guys updated as we get details on that. And, um, you know, if we can get more um, audience involvement in future episodes, that's definitely something that we'd love to promote. So, um, now that being said, you can always go to forgeandanvil.locals.com to continue to join us for um, supporting the show and getting additional content. So feel free to check that out. Uh, Michael, in the meantime, where can people find you? Well, right now you can find me reading J.R.R. Tolkien. I've been reading The Lord of the Rings because I'm in between semesters and schooling right now, and I'm just enjoying that. It's wonderful. And I do want to say just kind of as a as a little add-on to that wrap-up that you gave, Connor. Um, tonight was not, this, this message was not meant to be a case study on homosexuality or economics. Right. <laughs> so please understand that that is not the purpose of our conversation. 
we want to identify the ways in which the enemy and and those who would serve his end are able and willing and successful in manipulating the word of god manipulating the people of god into a sinful uh, perversion from the will of god and the word of god so please know scripture well seek out the heart of christ and pray to that end as well prayer is very important yes absolutely yeah thank you for that that was a good good way to cap it so thank you so much for listening or watching wherever you consume our content we really appreciate your support have a great rest of your day